he can't keep it. My name's Adam. Uh, if we haven't met, it's great to be with you today and to open up this uh, really amazing part of God's Word. But I want to begin by asking you, what is the most impressive building you've ever seen? The most awe-inspiring structure you've ever stood before? Personally, I think back to 2010 when I went on a, a Bible study tour through Egypt, Jordan and Israel. Got to see some amazing structures on that trip. But perhaps none more impressive than the Great Pyramids of Giza. Now, when I showed this photo in the 8 a.m., they started laughing, which wasn't very kind. Now, to see the Great Pyramids up close was incredible. To think about how that they, they had been built was mind-boggling. To then go through this narrow hallway into the burial chamber beneath the pyramid, from which the reason that the pyramid was built was just incredible. Felt a little bit like I was in an Indiana Jones movie. Now, there are lots of other impressive buildings throughout the world. The Great Wall of China is the world's longest structure. The Burj Khalifa is the world's tallest building. There's the Colosseum, the Taj Mahal, the Hagia Sophia, the Sydney Opera House, to throw in an Australian edition. I mean, on and on we could go. And the reason I bring this up is because today we come to another construction project. Today we're going to be looking at another building which I would say is more important than all the other ones that I've just mentioned. Now if you haven't been around, we've been in a sermon series looking at the life of King Solomon. So far in this series, we've seen Solomon's rise to power, chapter 1. We've seen Solomon's rule firmly established, chapter 2. Last week, we saw Solomon's great wisdom put on display, chapters 3 and 4. Today, we come to Solomon's greatest ever achievement, the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, how do we know that this is Solomon's greatest ever achievement? Well, consider this. There are 11 chapters in the Bible which are devoted to the life of King Solomon. We're going to look at all of them in this series. Four of those 11 chapters are devoted to the construction of the temple. Four of the 11 chapters are devoted to this one event. It tells us something about its importance. It's almost as if the author is wanting us to slow down, to pay attention. But why is this particular building so important? Why is it so worthy of our attention? Well, to put it simply, Solomon is building a house for God. The temple would be God's dwelling place on earth. And this is why we get all of the detail that we do. If you have your Bibles in front of you there, open to 1 Kings chapter 5, you will see in chapter 5 through to chapter 7 that it is just three chapters of solid detail, cubits and lengths, and we get details from pomegranates to pillars and doors to decorations and tools to timber, all kinds of things. Now, why the detail? Well, if you're building a house, if you're renovating a house, you pay attention to the details, don't you? Shouldn't we do the same for God? 
This is why the author is giving us so much detail, because this isn't just any building. This building would serve as the dwelling place of God on earth. But let's be honest, when we come to long lists like this in the Bible, we tend to treat them a little bit like traffic on the highway. The best thing about it is getting past it. I mean, I read uh, one author this week, he, he described these as inspired. God has inspired them, but they are largely uninspiring chapters. I mean, they're not the most thrilling reading. But this is really one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible. A lot like traffic on the highway, it's going to force us to slow down, to pay attention to things that we might otherwise overlook or just zoom straight past. And the fact is, there is a lot of gold to be found in these chapters. Pun intended. Someone got it. Someone smiled. Thank you, Pete. (laughs) There's a number of profound truths about God how God relates to us, what God has done for us. In fact, Gary Miller is the principal of the Queensland Theological College. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's written a number of books. He says about these chapters, about the truths in these chapters, that they are one of the most complete guides to living for God anywhere in the Bible. Now, that's a big claim, but I think he might be right, and I hope that you might agree by the time we get to the end. So let's dive into these three chapters together. You're going to have to put your thinking hats on today. We're going to do a little bit of heavy lifting, but I think it's going to be profoundly helpful. We're going to explore these chapters under four headings. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It is promises kept. Now, before we get lost in the lists, before we dive into the details, we need to zoom out for a moment to ask ourselves, why is this project happening? What is driving the construction of the temple? Why are Solomon and his helpers so devoted to building the temple? Where did they get the idea from? And the answer is the promise of God. This was not Solomon's idea, this was God's idea. This is what Solomon says to King Hiram in chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He says, God has delivered us from all our enemies. God has given us rest on every side. And then he says in verse 5, I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God. Listen to this. As the Lord told my father David. This is God's idea. When he said, your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, that's Solomon, he will build the temple for my name. The whole building project is built upon the promise of God. And this thread of God's initiative kind of props up or pops up at a number of points in these chapters. So later in chapter 5, we read, The Lord gave Solomon wisdom just as he had promised him. God is giving Solomon wisdom to complete the work. Then we get to verse 1 of chapter 6, and the construction of the temple is tied back to the Exodus. Look at what the author says. It says, In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out of Egypt, after they were delivered from slavery, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, he began to build the temple of the Lord. Now, why would the author tie the construction of the temple back to the Exodus? The answer is because in many ways, the construction of the temple is the fulfillment of the Exodus. 
You know, God set his people free from slavery in Egypt, not so that they could just kind of wander around aimlessly, not so that they could live however they wanted, but so that they could belong to God. We might say it this way, God delivered his people in order to dwell with his people. God saved his people in order to settle with them. God rescued them in order to have relationship with them. And this is always the purpose of salvation. Still true to this day, God has rescued us in Jesus Christ, not so that we can just have a ticket to heaven one day. Punch, pray, done. God has rescued us in Jesus Christ so that we might have relationship with him. So that we might know him and enjoy him and worship him. It's always the purpose of salvation. And this is what the construction of the temple shows us. God intends to dwell with his people. It was the purpose of the Exodus. It was the promise that God made. And now God is keeping his promise. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the fulfillment of this promise took a long time. 480 years from their rescue to their rest. And you think God takes a long time to answer your prayers. There's an important lesson here, isn't there? God doesn't work according to our schedule. God doesn't operate according to our calendars. We can't say, God, I've got this coming up on this date, so it would be really great if you could kind of sort this out before then. God has his own schedule. God has his own timing. And we're not always going to understand it. We're not always going to like it. We might even feel like God has forgotten about us or that God doesn't care about us. But the fact of the matter is, as I heard one of our elders pray at our prayer meeting on Monday night, God's timing is always on time. And we must learn to trust Him even when we can't understand Him. Because God is faithful and He always keeps His promises. He kept His promises to Israel and He'll keep His promises to us. It's the first thing we learn from these chapters. It's promises kept. But secondly, if you're taking notes, we also see in these chapters delightful details. Now, you might have heard the saying, the devil is in the details. It means that there's often a nasty surprise in the fine print. Well, it's kind of true for these chapters as well, except I would say the delight is in the details. Or as someone told me in between services, there's an architect that once said, God is in the details. And that's what we're going to learn as we dive into this long list. Now, what do we find in this long list of details in chapter 6? What are the details of the temple? Well, the author describes it for us in chapter 6, and he begins with the exterior of the building. Here's a a basic floor plan to help you kind of see the, the shape and the layout of the temple. You can see that it was a rectangular building. Now, it wasn't particularly large. It was about 30 meters long, about 10 to 15 meters wide, and about 15 meters high. So it was about the size of a 25-meter swimming pool, a little bit longer, a little bit narrower, but very, very high. And it was built using cut stones from a nearby quarry. You can see there were some side rooms around the edge. There was also an entrance portico with two large pillars. That's kind of the, the outside, the exterior of the building, which is what the author describes first. But then he turns his attention to the interior of the building. 
And this is where he seems most interested. This is where he spends most of his time. He tells us that the interior was lined with cedar from Lebanon, which is some of the most uh, finest timber that you can buy. It's a little bit better than what you get from Bunnings. There were floral carvings and decorations throughout the temple. There were carvings of palm trees. There were also, we're told, large cherubim. Now, these were big statues, about four and a half meters tall, with the body of a lion, the wings of an angel, and the face of a human. You can imagine they would have been pretty striking. Now, I want you to keep the flowers and the trees and the cherubim in mind for later, because they'll be very significant when we get to the end. But you see, as you read through this detail about the temple, what really stands out above all the rest is all of the gold. Everything is covered in gold. The hall, the altar, the table, the doors, the cherubim, even the floor was covered in gold. Here's a drawing to to give you a sense of what it may have looked like. I wonder if anyone has a living room that looks like that. Now, Now, when Howard Carter was asked what he first saw when he entered the tomb of King Tutankhamun in Egypt, he replied, wonderful things. And the priests of Israel probably said something similar when they entered the temple of Solomon. But you might be wondering, what's the deal with all the gold? Isn't it a bit wasteful? Isn't it a bit indulgent? I mean, couldn't this wealth have been spent on other better things? And I understand the objection you read the text and there is no sense of embarrassment in the text. There is no blushing about all this gold. There is no awkwardness. In fact, there is a sense of awe in the passage. Why? Because the splendor of the temple is meant to reflect the splendor of God. The glory of the temple is meant to point to the glory of God. The point is that God is worth all of this. The temple would take your breath away because this is what God is like. God is great and glorious and beautiful. And this is why his dwelling place is great and glorious and beautiful. Now, there are lots of different ways that we could try to apply this. You know, we could say that it shows us that God is worthy of our best. We shouldn't be content with doing things poorly or half-heartedly. It shows us that we should care about aesthetics That as believers, we should make beautiful things to reflect the beauty of our God. But what's really interesting to me about all of this is that all of the gold and all of the glorious detail in the temple, it would almost, it wouldn't even be seen by most people. Do you know, the average Israelite would never walk on that golden floor. The average Israelite would never even go inside the temple. Only the priests could go into the main hall of the temple, and only the high priest could go into the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, and even then, only one time per year. So why go to all this trouble? Why go to all this expense on a room that barely anyone is going to see? The answer is that this is done purely for God's sake. The craftsmen who are doing all of this, they're not doing it for public acclaim. They're not doing it to drum up business. They're not hanging a business sign on the outside of the temple. Craftsmanship done by so-and-so. 
They're doing this for God. It it reminds me of a story I once heard about a craftsman from Europe who moved to America to work on one of the, the largest cathedrals over there. And there was this tourist one day walking through the cathedral and he noticed this craftsman working high up in the ceiling. And he was working on a detail that was, that was invisible from the floor. And the tourist said to this craftsman, he said, why are you bothering with that? No one can even see the detail from down here. And the craftsman replied, God can. There is great dignity and satisfaction in doing work for God that no one else will ever see. Nothing that is done in service of God, no matter how small it is, will escape God's notice. Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he once said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him a little bit, he said, God smiles when parents change a dirty nappy in godly love and in Christian faith. And so when my son Jude had a dirty nappy after the service today, I quoted this verse to my wife Molly. Just kidding. Here's the point. Whether we're working on the intricate details of the temple, whether we're managing the day-to-day details of our home, whether we're studying at school or changing nappies or going to work or putting out chairs on a Sunday morning or or making tea and coffee in the kitchen or inviting neighbors over for a meal, whatever we're doing, none of it escapes God's notice. God is in the details. There is great delight in the details. This is what we learn from these chapters. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Promises kept. We also learn delightful details that God is in the details. And then thirdly, what we also see in these chapters is dangerous distractions. Now, we get distracted very easily, don't we? Some of you are distracted right now. Your eyes glazed over when we started to talk about all the gold. Solomon, it seems, was also distracted. When we get to the end of chapter 6, after all of the details that we've heard about the temple, we read this in the very last verse. In the 11th year, in the 8th month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. Now, it sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? To spend seven years on a building is a long time. Until you read the very next verse. Chapter 7 begins this way in verse 1. It says, It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. So Solomon had not just been building a temple for God, he'd also been building a palace for himself. In fact, he'd also been building a palace for his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh, and a hall of justice, which is like a courtroom. He'd been a busy boy. But what I want you to notice is when we compare the temple to his palace... He took twice as long to build his home. And verse 2 tells us that his palace was almost twice as big as the temple. And the author is placing these facts side by side to suggest that Solomon got it wrong. Solomon's priorities were out of order. Yes, he built a house for God, but he built a bigger house for himself. Now, of course, Solomon needed a home. And being a king, it wasn't going to be a shack. But as Gary Miller said, the house he built says a lot about him. I mean, if you wanted to understand or to know Solomon's priorities, all you had to do was take a walk through the city of Jerusalem. And you would see it on the skyline. 
And so if someone took a walk down the main street of our lives, what would it reveal about our priorities? Jesus said in Matthew 6, he, says, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The fact is, whether we like it or not, where we choose to live, the car we choose to drive, how we spend our money, how we save our money, these things are a good measure of our spiritual health. Now, I'm not saying big homes are bad. I'm not saying new cars are wrong. Not at all. God has given us good things to enjoy. God wants us to provide for our families. God wants us to have homes and possessions, to be grateful for them, to enjoy them, but we must also remember that they're temporary and passing away. There was an article I read earlier this year on the the Gospel Coalition website. It was called, Why John Stott Lived With Less. Now, John Stott, if you've never heard of him, he was easily one of the, the most influential Christian leaders in the last 100 years. In fact, Time Magazine in 2005 ranked him in, in among the 100 most influential people in the world. John Stott was rector of All Souls Church in London for many years. He authored and co-authored about 60 books. He started institutes and fellowships and partnerships. He was a big deal. But according to those who knew him best, he lived a simple life. Here's what the article says. It says, simplicity doesn't come naturally in a consumer culture. Those who live in upwardly mobile societies must make purposeful choices. For Stott, this meant living in a small flat and enjoying simple meals. Friends say he declined extra portions of food out of a feeling of solidarity with the poor. The blue blazer he wore regularly was near threadbare, and he once felt ashamed upon admitting that he'd purchased a second pair of shoes. John Stott also forfeited all of the royalties from his books. Instead, he assigned all of the earnings to a trust, which today is a multi-million dollar fund, and it's used to purchase Bible resources for those in developing countries. John Stott lived with less so that others might have more. And of course, he's merely following the example of the Lord Jesus, the one who was rich yet for our sake became poor. Now, I don't know about you, but but I've got a long way to go in all of this. But I would like to be more like Stott than Solomon. Because Solomon seems to be heading in the other direction, and he stands in these chapters as a warning to us. And so don't you begin to agree with Gary Miller when he said these chapters are a great guide to living for God? We've seen promises kept. God is faithful. We've seen God is in the details. We've seen that there are dangerous distractions. Fourthly and finally, what we see in these chapters is ultimate fulfillment. See, there's this small note in the middle of chapter 6, and it's almost the key to the entire passage. Because it's the first time in all of these chapters, and it's the only time in all of these chapters, where God speaks. And it's almost like an interruption Because you've got all these details about the temple and in the middle of it all, God speaks and God almost says nothing about the temple itself. Look at what God says. It says, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. 
And so instead of talking about the splendor of the temple, God talks about the importance of obedience. He says, so if you want to enjoy my presence, if you want to enjoy my promise, then you must live faithfully before me. It's almost as if God is saying the building is, is great, the building is important, but the building is not everything. I want more than your attendance. I want your heart. Now notice who is being addressed here. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. God is saying to King Solomon, if my promises are going to be fulfilled, you must live faithfully before me. You must observe my laws, observe my decrees. And this should immediately set off some alarm bells because we've already seen that Solomon is already failing. His priorities are already out of order. This is not a good sign. I mean, if the promise of God's presence, if it's tied to the obedience of the king, then God's people are in trouble. And sure enough, within 400 years, after repeated rebellion from God's people and especially from God's, God's kings, God's presence will depart, the temple will be destroyed, and the people will go into exile. And sadly, this is a familiar story. I mean, if we're paying attention, this should remind us of another story earlier in the Bible. This should remind us of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what happened? God dwelled among his people. God's presence, he walked with them in the cool of the afternoon in the garden. But Adam and Eve rebelled. They did not live faithfully before God. They were expelled from the garden and they were exiled from God's presence. In fact, Genesis 3 tells us that the way back into God's presence is shut. It's guarded by cherubim with flaming swords. And this has been the story of humanity ever since, outside of Eden, outside of God's presence. And this is what made the temple look so promising. For a moment, it looked like a new dawn. It looked like a new Garden of Eden. This is why I wanted you to remember the flowers and the trees and the cherubim. It's supposed to remind us about the, about the Garden of Eden. It looked like Eden restored for just a moment. But it wasn't because Solomon failed. He was not the faithful king that we needed. But thankfully, Solomon is not the end of the story. Thankfully, there is a king that is greater than Solomon. And when Jesus Christ arrived on the scene in human history, he claimed in John chapter 2 to be the true temple. He said about his body, destroy this temple and in three, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus doesn't just come and build a temple. Jesus is the temple. He is God with us. But it gets even better because Jesus did not just come and live among us for a few years. Jesus secured God's presence with us both now and forever. Because if God's presence is wrapped up in the obedience of the king, then Jesus is the faithful king that we need. Because unlike Adam, unlike Solomon, and unlike us, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. And on the cross, Jesus was cast out so we could be brought in, which is exactly what happens. When we turn to Jesus in faith, we are given the gift of God's presence. We are made part of God's temple. The average Israelite couldn't even enter the temple. The average Christian becomes a temple. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the living God. The same glorious God that dwelled in Solomon's temple. And he now comes to live in you and in me. And he begins to change us from the inside out. 
But you know, as amazing as this is, the reality of God's presence with us now, it's just the down payment. It's just the deposit. It's just a foretaste of something even better. Because there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return and he will usher in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And we will dwell in a garden city. We will walk on streets paved with gold. And the leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nations. And the echoes of Eden, the shadow of the temple, they will give way to ultimate reality. And we will behold the glory of God face to face. And this is why right at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, it says this. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. Don't you see why these chapters in 1 Kings, they're more than just long lists and lots of detail. They are nothing less than an invitation into relationship with the living God. The God who loves to dwell with his people. And the God who has done everything necessary for us to enter his glorious presence. You know, the title of this sermon is How to Build a House for God. It should really be How God Builds a House for Us. Because this is what it's all about. This is what the Bible is all about. God has opened the door for us. God has made a way for us to come home to Him. And the question is, will you come? His arms are open. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have made a way for us to come home through your son, the Lord Jesus. Our sin, our rebellion, our evil could not stop you. You have defeated them. You have opened the door and you, can, you now welcome us home. Lord, thank you that from the beginning of the Bible right to the very end, we see that you are a God who loves to dwell with his people. We thank you that you have given us the gift of your spirit and that you've given us the promise of that garden city where there will be no more temple because you will give us light and life and everything we need. So Lord, some of us here today need to come home. We've walked away, we've been wandering, and today we see that your arms are open and your heart is for us. Where else would we go? Father, we thank you. And we give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.